Chapter 22 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 22 The Province of Corrientes. On the 6th of July, we came to a portion of the river where, for the first time, we saw both banks at the same time, the wilderness of El Chaco being on one side, the not less wild province of Corrientes on the other no islands as usual intervening between us and one or the other of the two mainlands we beheld at last after all these labyrinths of isles and channels the whole volume of the parana concentrated in one stream and a noble river it seemed here of considerable depth and i should say about two miles in breadth at nightfall we came to an anchor off a rancho of mud and bamboo on the corrientes beach it was the first sign of man we had seen since we were off the Riacho of Esquina ten days before. The owner of this house came forth when he heard our chain rattle out and endeavored to strike up a conversation with us. But we were sulky and stood on our dignity at first, not responding heartily to his friendly overtures. For, if the truth be told, we felt very annoyed and aggrieved when we beheld his hut and its holder. We had lately taken to looking on all these deserts and forests as our own happy hunting grounds, and this fellow seemed to us an intruder on our solitude. He, at any rate, owed us a humble apology for having dared to build himself a house in the center of our preserves, and just in front of our night's anchorage, too. But when he came off to us in a little canoe with a peace offering of cassava, sweet potatoes, and eggs, and only wanted a little bag of coarse salt in exchange, we melted and magnanimously forgave him. We went on shore and found that there were several ranchos behind his. Round one was a plantation of orange trees covered with fine ripe fruit. Wishing to purchase some of these, we went up to the hut and found there two women swinging lazily in grass hammocks, smoking huge cigars. We addressed them politely, but found that they could not understand a word of Spanish, being only cognizant to the Indian dialect Guarani. However, our first acquaintance could speak a tongue that bore some distant relationship to Castilian and acted as interpreter. The women drawled out in the soft vowels of the Indian language that we could have oranges at a dollar a thousand, but must gather them ourselves. As it was nearly our dinner time, this we could not do, but informed them that we would be willing to pay more if they would pluck them for us. This they declined to do. They were far too comfortable there in their soft hammocks, dreamily watching the wreaths of smoke as it rose from their mouths, to think of descending were it for forty dollars. But a happy thought occurred to the inspired Jardine, and he said, Fair ladies, if you will but pluck for us five hundred oranges, we will give a grand ball in this village tonight at which we will hope to have the pleasure of seeing you. When this was interpreted into Guarani, we could perceive by the expression on their faces that they were at last moved by our entreaties. The prospect of a ball excited them greatly, but they were not to be humbugged, so these indolent beauties, beauties by courtesy, would not get out of their hammocks till they had inquired into all the details of our entertainment. But there is no music here, urged one. Oh, yes, there is, explained the persuasive Jardine. There is a concertina and a box full of dances. 
You turn a handle and out they come. And he demonstrated in pantomime the action of a hurdy-gurdy. There will also be gin, said our interpreter. And tobacco, considered Jardine. Before all these temptations, the fair ones could not but yield, and they consented to pluck us our oranges, on the understanding that no oranges, no ball. This little settlement is called Rincón de Sota, and the inhabitants of it are about as numerous as the letters of its name. The poverty of the place can be imagined when I state that it does not support either a comandante or a judge. As we had progressed northward, we perceived that the population became more agricultural in its pursuits. Thus, these poor half-breeds of Rincón de Sota cultivated the ground around their bamboo huts with considerable care, producing cassava, potatoes, oranges, and maize, very unlike the shepherd aristocrats of the Pampas who scorned to till the soil. Of the dozen inhabitants of this little place, about nine were of the other sex. These, on hearing of the coming ball, became excited to a degree, and forthwith set out to wash themselves in the river, and otherwise adorn themselves in a rather public manner for the great event. The ball was to be held in the rancho of our first friend, which was large and had a fine mud floor, admirably adapted for the purpose. At about nine in the evening, we went on shore with the concertina, the barrel organ, and three bottles of gin. We, too, were in ball dress, that is, we wore top boots, had sailors' guernseys on, handkerchiefs around our necks, and revolvers and knives at our backs. None other but ourselves wore boots. We left Jim to keep watch on deck with a musket during our absence, and Arthur, with a cutlass as big as himself, stood by our canoe on shore. For, of course, we could not know that our new friends were not of a piratical and brigand disposition. Anyhow, this is a rough and dangerous part of the river, and it was well to be prudent. But all went on well, and there was no grand finale of stabs and shots to mar the harmony of the evening. Women, as well as men, smoked long Paraguayan cigars all the time they were dancing, as is the custom of this province, where the smallest child indulges freely in the strong green weeds, and where a baby crying in its mother's arms is soothed by having a plug of tobacco thrust into its mouth. Our host was an Indio Manso, or tame Indian, a very ugly but sprightly old gentleman, who, becoming medio obscuro, as Don Juan euphemistically termed his condition, sat in a corner, with an expression of intense satisfaction on his leather features, clapped his hands, and exclaimed at intervals, Es muy superior, muy superior. He, at any rate, appreciated our efforts to amuse the population. His ugly squaw was highly pleased with a keepsake I presented to her, being an old wooden pipe. The barrel organ, of course, was an object of great interest. Everyone insisted on having his turn in revolving the handle, and the smiles of astonishment, pride, and delight that illuminated those simple ugly faces when a real bona fide tune resulted from their efforts were worth seeing. It was not until the evening of the 12th of July, having been 61 days out from the Tigre, that we came to an anchor off the town of Bella Vista. The aspect of the scenery around us at that moment was extraordinarily beautiful. We were between the sun and the moon. On our left hand was the former, setting gloriously behind the Chaco, throwing over all that wild country a peculiar crimson glare. 
while to the left of us, over the Corriente shore, hung the full moon, casting a silver light upon the white houses of the ancient city. Very remarkable was the contrast of color between the two coasts under these circumstances, and apt to recall to one's mind the still sharper contrast, in another respect, between the two lands thus separated by the mighty river. On the one hand, the Spanish settlements, the countries of the men that live in houses, civilization of a poor kind, but civilization all the same and progressive. On the other hand, barbarism, for there lay the vast Indian hunting ground of El Gran Chaco, where the aborigines defy the white man and wage perpetual war against him. For three centuries, the two races have looked at each other across the broad Paraná for upwards of a thousand miles of its course with the same irreconcilable hatred. And nothing so strikes a stranger when standing in the streets of such a town as Corrientes, with its tramways, its men in black coats and top hats, and other outward signs of civilization, as to look across the gleaming Paraná and remember that that fair country so near to him is yet the uncontested territory of the savage, as much as it was before the Spanish keels first clove the waters of the river plate. We had to remain at Bella Vista throughout the next day in consequence of a calm. This town, though the second of the province, is a wretched place, but beautifully situated on the summit of the Barranca, commanding an extensive view over the Paraná and its islands and the Chaco beyond. The river, as seen from the plaza, is very majestic. Even here, and far above this, it stretches in such broad, seemingly shoreless expanses that an explorer coming from overland upon its banks would easily imagine that he had reached some bay of the sea were it not for the freshness of the water. Bella Vista is embowered in a grove of oranges. Each house is surrounded by a plantation of these dark foliage trees now covered with golden fruit. No region in the world so abounds with oranges as do the province of Corrientes and the Republic of Paraguay. It is not worth the while of the people to gather them, save where the trees are in the vicinity of the river bank, for there it is easy to dispose of them to the Italian schooners that sail up the Paraná at this season to take in cargoes of the fruit. At Bella Vista, we were enabled to lay in a fresh supply of beef, salt, mate, wine, and vegetables. We also covered our decks with mountains of oranges, which we devoured from morning till night, to the horror of Don Juan who told us we should all die of a horrible death if we committed these excesses. Said he, It is the fever, choo-choo, season now on the river. Nothing gives a man fever so soon as eating oranges. But we would not be persuaded, being unable to see any connection between malaria and oranges, and we did not catch fever, whereas abstemious Don Juan did, though but mildly. After leaving Bella Vista, we sailed for two days, when the wind rather suddenly veered to the north, and we were obliged to anchor off the mouth of a large riacho that penetrated the Chaco. This change caused the thermometer to rise from 65 degrees to 85 degrees in the shade within a few hours. In the canoe, I ascended this riacho for some miles with Jardine. A forest of fine trees, but impassable on account of the dense undergrowth, lined either bank. At last we came to an encampment of some twenty wild-looking half-breeds and tame Indians, who had two long canoes moored to the bank. 
They were occupied in cutting down bamboos for sale in Bella Vista, where they are much used for building and other purposes. They were fairly armed with old-fashioned muskets, knives, and bolas to defend themselves in case of attack by marauding Indians. Their wives and children were with them and performed all the domestic duties of the little camp. When the dogs had been quieted with sundry kicks from their owners and objurgations, which I suppose were Indians' curses, we saluted each other and entered into conversation. They told us that there was an open savanna some three leagues up the Riacho where there was a great plenty of game and wild beasts, but that by the bank between us and that, on a campo muy rico, there was a tolderia or village of Tobas Indians, who were far from being friendly disposed to the white man. One old fellow that was spokesman of the party was a professional tiger hunter. He had an ugly and many-scarred dog with him that was the hero of a hundred fights with a jaguar, in which he said he would not sell for five ounces of gold. In the night of the 18th of July, a gale of wind sprang up from the southwest and raised such high waves that we rolled about at anchor as if we had been lying in the Solent instead of on a river 1,000 miles from the sea. On the 19th, the Pampero was still blowing with such fury that we sailed under mizzen and foresail alone, going very fast even under that short canvas. There was quite a heavy sea running in places, so that we felt anxious, for to have run on a bank under these circumstances might have involved the total loss of the falcon. Hereabouts, too, the bottom is not altogether composed of sand and soft mud, but blocks of Tosca rise up at intervals. This is a sort of natural concrete, nearly as hard as rock. But the pilot was very careful, sounding every moment as we crossed the perilous shoals, with often not more than half a foot of water under our keel. We were continually turning and jibbing our sails, till at last we were greatly relieved by Don Juan saying, as he coiled his lead line on the hatch, All right now, we have three fathoms of water all the way from here to Corrientes. Before dark, we came to an anchor off the city of Corrientes, the capital of the province of the same name. This is a curious old place, rising from a shore of rough, lumpy Tosca. Both beach and town have a slovenly, unkempt appearance. The streets are of loose sand with big stones and deep holes here and there. Straight, lifeless streets, fragrant with many orange trees, unlit by night and then not over-safe to promenade in, for the population of Corrientes has a lawless, murderous reputation. Several campaniles of old Jesuit churches dominate the dilapidated-looking city, and there is a college, a really fine building that would be worthy of a European university town. I saw the pupils turning out from lecture when I was here. They were of the age of English schoolboys, small boys too for the most part, but in their manners very different indeed from those at home. There was none of that boisterous tumbling out of school, those irrepressible animal spirits that distinguished the British urchin. These sallow youngsters walked out staid and solemn, old men and all but years, each, even the smallest, puffing away at a gigantic native cigar. On landing in our canoe on the Tosca beach, we found ourselves in the midst of a crowd of half-naked women washing clothes and chattering, as is the manner of washerwomen all over the world, very fast in the soft Guarani. 
A little higher up on the beach was an encampment of men, women, and children whose barbaric costume and hideous faces betokened them to be Indians of the Chaco. They were Guacurus, a ferocious tribe, and spoke a harsh, guttural language sounding very unpleasant after the tongue of the civilized Guaranis. These Guacurus had come over the river in a huge canoe which they had drawn up on the beach. They had brought firewood and skins of wild beasts to exchange for salt and other necessaries. They were of a very dark color, with long, coarse black hair hanging down their backs. Some had tiger skins, but most had merely filthy blankets wrapped around them. The women were, if possible, uglier than the men. The married women were distinguished from the maidens by large round patches of black or dark blue paint under their eyes, giving each one the appearance of having received two very thorough black eyes at her husband's hands. Corrientes is really more an Indian than a Spanish city, for not only do the savages from the Chaco often throng its streets, gazing with wonder at the gaudy blankets and cheap trinkets that are exhibited in the stores to attract them, but, as far as I could judge, quite three-quarters of the inhabitants are Guaranis and speak that tongue. Arnaud and myself were going off to the Falcon the same evening at about eleven o'clock. We stood on the beach and hailed her until we were hoarse. For upwards of half an hour we shouted, so that we woke up most of the Indians camping around their fires. All the cocks and corrientes commenced to crow, all the dogs to bark, and the police to yell challenges and answers to each other in different parts of the city, as is their custom to show that they were awake and heard the disturbance, and, as is also their custom in a row, they took very good care not to come anywhere near us. Though we had stirred up a din as of many revolutions, our sleepy crew would not wake. So, as there was no one else about, we applied to the Guacuru Indians for assistance. I gently poked one with a stick, whereon he rolled out of his blanket with a grunt. I tried to explain to him that we wished to go on board the Falcon in the canoe of his people, a huge craft that required at least four men to row it. He would not understand. Then I showed him a silver dollar, and he evinced signs of intelligence and proceeded to wake up some of his fellows. But now a difficulty arose. The squaws and children were already awake and sitting up in their blankets, staring at us with their black beady eyes, but it seemed that our friend was too gallant to ask the ladies to row us over, or perhaps too jealous to trust these questionable beauties with us. Anyhow, he insisted on trying to wake the men. But these sons of the tropic forest had, after completing their barter, invested most of their gain, as is their wont, in the firewater of the white man, the insinuating square-faced gin. Dead drunkenness is the only term that can express the condition of most of these noble savages. Our friend, who was comparatively sober, failing to awake the others, went up to the cacique, a huge ruffian rolled up in a white blanket and reclining his head on a half-empty bottle of gin as a pillow. He proceeded to stir up this great man with a ceremoniously and respectfully administered kick in the ear, as befitted his high station. The savage, with his wild beast instincts, fearful of danger in every sound, leapt to his feet in a moment, as if he had received an electric shock, with a sudden start and a horrible yell as his right hand clutched his long knife. Having appeased him, our Indian tried to explain our wants and put before his chief 
all the arguments in our favor, how many drams of gin could be purchased for a dollar, and so on. But the cacique was too far gone to understand anything, even gin. So, after glaring savagely around with his bloodshot eyes, and muttering sundry guttural blood-curdling remark in Guacuru, he fell down and relapsed into insensibility. Finding that we could not get a boat, we presented our friendly barbarian with a few cigars and repaired to an almacen to beg a bed, having succeeded in awaking the savages, docks, cocks, police, and citizens of Corrientes, all indeed save our sleepy boys. I have already alluded to the many curious substitutes for coins that a South American storekeeper will give you in change, such as the valets or IOUs, tramway tickets, chopped-up Bolivians, and so on. In Corrientes and all of the Paraguayan towns, you will receive in lieu of small change, as I found on paying my hotel bill the morning after our adventure with the Guacurus, boxes of matches, bundles of cigars, and drinks. Very cumbersome, say perhaps the latter, which are a sufficiently portable currency. And yet, have we not seen men totter even beneath the weight of these? On going down to the beach, we walked over the prostrate forms of the still drunken, incapable Indians, whose lank, black locks were alone visible above their dirty blankets. The squaws, however, were awake, smoking cigars and sadly contemplating their lords, who, in a night spree, had thus wasted all that the women had earned by months of hard work, reserving nothing wherewith to buy the little household necessaries, such as salt to flavor the Sunday joint of alligator tail, a blanket for a new baby, or tobacco for the old wife. Our boy Arthur was an independent and mutinous young ruffian, who, like most of us, would not hearken to and profit by the experience of his elders. So it happened that, in consequence of neglecting the sage advice of Jerdine and myself, he received a rather practical lesson on the night after our arrival in Corrientes. Having obtained permission to stroll about the town for a few hours in the afternoon, he proceeded to dress himself out in the costume in which he most fancied himself, being the Sunday apparel of a North Sea fishing boy. Thick pilot coat, woolen stocking around the neck, and so on more adapted to the Arctic regions than to latitude 26 degrees. Thus accoutred, and with the biggest cigar he could procure in his mouth, he commenced to roll about Corrientes in the regular jack-ashore style. To cut the story short, he broke his leave and never returned all night. We went off in the canoe to look for him in the early morning, and there on the beach we beheld a miserable, half-naked object that we could not at first recognize as our gallant crew. He had nothing on but a pair of trousers. His face was swollen and bloated, and his teeth chattered with cold. We took him on board, where he explained as well as he could, but vaguely, what had occurred. He said he had been drugged by some Spanish sailors in a public house, then robbed of his coat, money, boots, hat, belt knife, pipe, and the like, and cast out in an insensible condition to pass the cold, dewy night upon the beach. He had been afraid to approach the Indian fires when he woke, and so must have had a very uncomfortable time of it. End of chapter 22